0: This is a Courageous Church Podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, we're continuing our brand new series called Saved. Throughout this series, we're going to be exploring the book of Ephesians together, verse by verse, one chapter at a time. And we're going to be looking at what it means to live a saved life a life that is fully loved and graced and reconciled and unified and made alive and raised up and seated together with Christ in heavenly places. Additionally, I want to provide us some biblical help in how to faithfully respond to what's going on in our world right now. As a result, I believe that God has within his word vested insight for us regarding things we're wrestling with and truth about who we really are in him. Truth that I believe we can build our lives upon. If you have your bibles with you today go with me to the book of ephesians chapter 2 we'll be reading out of verses 1 through 10 today and we have a lot of ground to cover so let's jump right in beginning with verse 1 here's what it says and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience Picking right up from where we ended last week, Paul here in speaking to the church in verse 1 begins by establishing a fact about our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And he says this, You were dead. One of my absolute favorite quotes, often attributed to the author and evangelist Leonard Ravenhill, goes like this, Jesus did not come into the world to make bad men good. He came into the world to make Dead men live. According to Ravenhill and echoing Paul here, our core problem is not just that we are bad or that we sometimes do bad things. It's that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's what the text says. What follows from a dead spiritual condition are deadly behaviors, which lead to deathly things. One of the primary struggles that people have in realizing their great need for a savior is that they don't see themselves this way. They don't see themselves as dead. The popular but very misleading view is that most people are inherently good, and though they might make mistakes from time to time, their heart is basically in the right place. I'm sure you've heard that repackaged one way or another. Unfortunately, this is not a biblical view or one we can safely derive from the scriptures. Now, it's true that God originally made people spiritually alive and in his image and likeness and said his creation was good, and certainly it was, but unfortunately for us, the story didn't end right after Genesis chapters one and two. In Genesis chapter three, we see sin and rebellion enter into the picture, and this sin and this rebellion leads to a kind of death. A spiritual death, we could say, and a separation between God and man. It follows that man is expelled from the garden of God and goes about doing wickedly upon the earth. And not only does he go about doing wickedly, the scriptures indicate that he is wicked and that his heart is only wicked continually. So how can this be? Because what follows from a dead spiritual condition our deadly behaviors which lead us to deathly things Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 in the New Living Translation tells us the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil now by this point in the story everything humanity thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil The text says here, not occasionally evil, but consistently and totally evil. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 reinforces this idea. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Both of those verses issue strong statements from God about humankind, about our humanity. Statements that we really need to grapple with if we're going to come to terms with a biblical view of what God thinks about us and what he's decided to do about it in Christ Jesus. And so Paul begins here in chapter two of Ephesians, verse one, by talking about the extent of our spiritual condition before God, knowing that our sin and our depravity and our wickedness has kept us separate from him. And he says this, you were dead. He goes on to qualify it for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So we were dead and we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The word trespass here means to take a false step. We would use that word if someone purposefully stepped onto our property in violation of a boundary line or a marker. Just about a month ago, my wife and I had our fence replaced on one side of our home. It was interesting to discover where our property line actually was, which was good. And we were able to successfully mark off and create a brand new section in our backyard to keep all of our dogs from wandering into and destroying things that they shouldn't. At one point in time, we actually used to have these really awesome garden boxes, these big white boxes with all sorts of onions and herbs growing in them. And then we got these Alaskan Malamutes who both love to dig and eat everything they can find. (laughs) So yeah, the onions uh, and the herbs went away pretty quickly. So we had to create boundaries to keep them from doing that. And we had to put in a taller fence to keep them from wandering out into the street and getting hit by a car. Now, in this sense, the boundaries that we established for them were and are very good. Everyone say it with me. Boundaries are a good thing. Boundaries are a good thing. And what we see in the idea behind this word trespass is that God has established certain boundaries for our lives. Boundaries not just to keep predators or strangers out, but boundaries to protect us and keeping us from getting into things that we shouldn't and wandering where we should not go. And yet, that's exactly what we've done. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have violated god's boundaries and trespassed against him are you tracking with me today we don't tend to use that word as much as we used to but the idea remains we might say things like well this time you've really crossed the line and to paul's point here because of our own wrongful attitudes and rebellious actions we have all purposefully crossed the line and we've done so by violating god's good boundaries for our lives Additionally, Paul uses the word sins here. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The word sin means to miss in one's aim or to deviate from the standard. Archers back in the day would use this term if they missed the target in shooting their arrows. They would be seen as having sinned, as having missed the mark. The idea here is that in our sins, we've been missing what we've been aiming at. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. Friends, ultimately the glory of God is the target or focus for our life's aim because we were made for God's glory, to reflect his glory. That's always been the intent for God's good creation as his great masterpiece and what the Bible calls his own handiwork, as we'll see here in just a few moments. We were designed by a master artist to reflect his radiance and marvelous nature and beauty and goodness and glory throughout the earth. So, whether it's by willful violation or are mistakenly missing the mark, we apart from Christ were and are spiritually dead in our trespasses and our sins because verse two says we were following the course of the world and the prince and the power of the air. Now the word for world here is cosmos and it typically means a universe or created order. But in this context, Paul is using it to speak of a worldly order, a way of life that has been ordered in such a way that is godless or without Christ. And interestingly enough, it's being paired here with the phrase, the prince and power of the air. This has always been traditionally known to be the devil or Satan, the accuser of God's people and the deceiver of nations. In the course of the world or this way of life that is ordered without Christ, Satan has been exercising his influence and domain as a prince and power of the air. The word air here used does not mean oxygen, but rather a spiritual atmosphere that interlocks with earth. We might even call it a heavenly place or a spiritual realm. And in this spiritual realm, the enemy has been waging his war against God's good creation and the saints for quite some time now. We spoke on that word saints last week, meaning holy ones, and the truth is this. The devil hates the holy ones and the holy things of God. He hates the church. That's why he's trying so hard to divide her and to shut her down right now. And he hates the church, which is Christ's body, because he hates Christ himself, the holy one of Israel. This is where we also get the term anti-Christ from. Anti- meaning against, and Christ- meaning the anointed one. The devil and his angels have taken up a combative stance against God's anointed one, that's Jesus, and against God's anointed ones, that's all of us. So don't be deceived. As we'll see later on in Ephesians chapter 6, we are in a spiritual battle. And not only is the devil at work within spiritual places, but he's active at work within what the text here calls the sons or the children of disobedience. The word disobedience here refers to the rejection of belief or a refusal to believe, meaning that the devil is able to assert his influence over people who refuse to believe in Jesus and who continue to walk according to the course or the patterns of this world. That's primarily how the enemy is able to do what he does in our lives. But for the people of God, that's you and me, those of us who have surrendered our lives to christ we are no longer children of disobedience come on but rather what first peter calls obedient children those that belong to and love and obey jesus jesus said guys if you love me then you'll obey me and i believe this the mark of those that truly love god are those that obey jesus pure and simple. And so Paul is contrasting our old way of life before we believed as those who trespassed and sinned against God by following the patterns of this world and as being under the influence of the devil, acting in disobedience to Christ with our new way of life. And I need to point out something key here, something that I think is actually really easy to miss. Verse 2 importantly adds the phrase, in which you once walked, meaning there's a demarcation here. Meaning there's, these are past and not present behaviors. This was once how you walked and behaved apart from Christ, but that's no longer your current reality. Guys, this is so crucial for us to understand. By way of analogy, it's kind of like being locked into a, a long-term subscription service by which you're stuck with that service provider's content. Like many of you guys, I have an internet service provider. They call it an ISP. Mine happens to be Xfinity, and it provides internet service via the cable that runs to my house. I also have a cellular service provider, T-Mobile. Before that, it was AT&T. And to ensure that I can back up all of my files, I have different cloud accounts, right? Cloud accounts like iCloud and Dropbox and Google Drive. Additionally, I also have a streaming service provider, Netflix. And at one point, I had multiple streaming service providers and app subscriptions. I had Hulu and Amazon and Sling TV. And then Disney Plus came out, right? But somewhere along the way, it just felt like our life was becoming so congested and so noisy and that we needed to simplify some things. So I decided to cancel some, if not many, of these accounts. And you know what? Some were actually really hard to let go of. Some even had contracts that had to be paid off before I could unsubscribe. But to my point, once those services were able to be canceled and disconnected, I was no longer stuck with the noise and the content they provided to me. And in the same way as Christ followers and believers, our subscription to the streaming services that once provided content under the spiritual rule and dominion of sin and our worldly system and the devil have now been permanently canceled in Jesus' mighty name. Those of you that were once locked into a long-term contract with death have been set free. Hallelujah. As i said last week for those of you that are now in christ meaning you've surrendered your life to him and he's placed his promised holy spirit within you you have been made a saint a holy one and you have a new heritage in jesus you've been adopted into his family to walk in and as his inheritance to the praise of his glory i mean this is good news This is the gospel of Jesus for all who believe. Jesus himself said, this is the reason for which I've come, guys, to destroy the works of the devil. You want my translation? Jesus came to cancel the Prince of the Air's streaming service over your life, amen? And some of you watching today have had God do this in your life in a major way, and it's changed everything for you. But some of you are still hooked up to the wrong streaming services, spiritually speaking that is. You need to allow Jesus to come in and to cancel some of these accounts. You need to allow Jesus to sever the connection to content providers that are keeping you bound up in sin and doubt and fear and lies. The devil, the Bible tells us, is the father of lies. As i've often said when you believe the lie you empower the liar even as christians we have to be careful not to re-establish service with or resubscribe to things that jesus has once canceled in our lives including old ways or patterns of thinking that's primarily why the scriptures tell us that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and so Paul here is expounding upon the good news of what Christ has done for us by calling us to consider the contrast of what our life in Christ now looks like as opposed to what it used to look like apart from him and we see this in even greater detail in the next verse verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. Now to elaborate on what our life apart from Christ looks like, it looks like living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the unruly desires of the body and the mind as what the text here says, children destined for wrath. As we all know, the passions or cravings of our flesh, although highly celebrated in our culture today, come on, you know that's true, and widely hallmarked as the chief glory of man, actually lead to the chief destruction of man when left unchecked or unrestricted. Left to our own pursuit for self-gratification, what the scriptures here refer to as the passions of the flesh, we will naturally carry out all the debased desires that our minds can come up with and that our bodies can act out upon. And to this end, we were, as the text says here, by nature, children of wrath. So trespassing and sinning was not just what we did, it was actually who we were. We were trespassers, purposefully violating God's boundaries and love, and we were sinners constantly missing the mark of His holiness and glory. In both instances, we were just like the rest of mankind, absolutely in need of a savior. So what do we need saving from? Obviously, ourselves, but what else? I mean, what specifically? Well, the biblical answer is God's wrath. Simply put, Jesus came to save us from God's wrath. The Bible says that we were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else, just like the rest of mankind. The word wrath here means righteous fury and or punishment, meaning that because of who we were and how we acted, we were already subject to God's righteous fury and his holy yet punitive judgment for our trespasses and sins. In other words, we need to be held accountable. And as we've now come to understand growing up in Christ and becoming mature is that this is actually a good thing. After all, God that won't hold people accountable for their actions is not a God worthy of our trust or worship or adoration, because a God that won't hold people accountable for their actions is not a just God. Because justice demands that things be accounted for and made right, does it not? But, If God is truly just, as the scriptures seem to indicate he is, it is only a just God that can issue a just verdict and how to deal rightly with all the ways that we have violated his laws and abused his good creation, meaning wrath is truly his right and or prerogative. And this is what makes God so offensive to most people today. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, most people view themselves to be inherently good, not wicked, or having violated anything or anyone. And as a result, most people end up living with this overwhelming view of their own goodness and an underwhelming view of their own sin. In doing so, they actually end up holding God accountable to their own unjust and distorted standards. When this happens, these same people can't understand why God would need to punish sin or deal with it or, or place anyone in hell because They have in essence become god's moral judge and superior but the real astonishing truth is not that god would deal justly with us although he has the right to or to send anyone to hell the real astonishing truth is that he would let anyone into heaven the real astonishing truth is that the only one who has the authority and the right to demand justice from us actually provides mercy instead verse 4 but god being rich in mercy. I want to pause right here because everything I'm about to say next hinges upon this very statement. And I want you to listen to it real closely and real carefully today. But God. In other words, God interrupts and enters into the conversation that we're having. And how does He do it? He does it by way of His own mercy but God verse 4 says being rich in mercy mercy rightfully defined can be described as not getting what you do deserve for example if I break the speed limit and get pulled over I deserve a ticket I've broken the law and I deserve the consequences or the penalties of my actions but mercy says hold up you're not gonna get that speeding ticket today Jason instead you're gonna get mercy and Pardon how many are thankful for when that happens? I know I am and it's the same way with our sins because God is Rich in mercy. We have been shown mercy through Jesus Christ Even when we spat on his holy laws and violated his righteous commands even when we acted hostile toward him and when we crucified him on that cross he has shown us Mercy friends. This is why courageous church exists in the first place verse 4 but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ hallelujah because of his mercy toward us even when we didn't know him even while we were dead in our trespasses and acting violence upon ourselves and others god loved us with what the text here says is a great love and He made us alive together with Christ Jesus. The good news is that because of what Jesus has done for you and me, we're no longer dead or spiritually cut off from God. Because of the actions of a merciful and loving God, the one who made us alive together with Christ Jesus, we've now been made the recipients of the greatest and most extraordinary gift of all. And that gift is called grace. Where mercy is defined as not getting what you do deserve, grace can be defined as getting what you don't deserve. Grace is the unearned, undeserved favor of God. It's you and I being given the greatest gift that we can never earn or ever deserve. In this way, grace is like finding out that you won the lottery when you never even bought a ticket. It's like being invited to a party you don't belong at by a loving friend you didn't even know you had and paul here in verse 5 says it is by grace that you have been saved because of god's grace this undeserved and unmerited favor in your life you have been saved the gospel of jesus for all who believe is that he's already taken upon himself our judgment and the penalty for our sins. At the cross, Jesus takes upon himself all of the Father's wrath so that we could be made recipients of all of the Father's grace and be forever saved. At the cross, Jesus gets what only we deserved so that he can give us what only he deserved. And we see this as the fulfillment of God's good plan to win back his kids. And this is what is so astounding about the person and work of Jesus. Jesus could have let us stand accountable for what we've done. He had the right to. But instead, he stood in our place. He who knew no sin became our sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. And in this way, Jesus shows himself to be the one and only spotless and sacrificial lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world Who died not only to pay and cover the penalty of our sins, which is always death, but to save us from our sins, for which comes forth wrath. Because, once again, he loved us. And in his great love and his jealousy for us, Jesus did what no man could do. He perfectly in every way satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. The biblical word here is propitiation. He propitiated, meaning he fully appeased and satisfied and met the qualifications of what a holy and just God requires for our sin. In the Old Testament, the word is atonement. The Jews would practice and celebrate this by way of Yom Kippur, or what we call the Day of Atonement. Basically, once a year, The high priest would enter into the tabernacle and into a place called the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood of a bull and a goat upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in order to make atonement for himself and all the sins of the people for that year. And this had to be done every year annually, right? In order for Israel to be rightfully cleansed and forgiven before God. But this was done as a type and a shadow of what was to come in greater fullness. Fast forward to the cross, to Calvary, where Jesus, by way of his own shed blood, becomes our full and final atonement. The mediator of a new covenant, the book of Hebrews tells us, dealing with not just one, but all of our sins, once and for all. As a result, we no longer stand condemned but forgiven and cleansed and now made alive together in Christ. This is what we as Christians believe and celebrate every time we come together to take communion and to worship God. Moving forward, verses 6 and 7. And, verse 6, raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's another astounding truth about what God has done in and through his beloved son. He's raised us up with him, meaning that in Christ's own resurrection, we find our resurrection life. And our life, as I said last week, is now anchored and tethered to Jesus's life in heavenly places. The point of origin for the life of a believer is not earth, but heaven. And that's where the text says we are actually seated with him right now. To be seated with means to be established in. It's speaking of a place of authority and rule. In ancient times, when someone was seated with the king, they essentially carried out his rule. They could act with his delegated authority and possessed the king's power to assert influence and dominion. When someone was considered seated at the right hand of a king, or a ruler, it was their way back then of saying that they were given the same authority to govern like the king. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so when the text says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places, it's speaking of that reality. It's saying to us that we have been given the ability to rule and to reign with Christ Jesus. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So how do we do that right now? How do we reign in life? We do that from a seated and established place in heavenly places, in the heavenlies, where our life is now hidden with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means that it's not from a place of stress, or anxiety, or worry, or fear, but from a place of royal confidence and security in Him. Amen? Verse 7 tells us that we're seated with Christ now, so that in the coming ages, in other words, in all seasons to come and throughout eternity, God might show forth the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. You want my paraphrase version? God did all this so that he could make you and make me into trophies of grace. A trophy is a symbolic picture of a battle won. When athletes get together to compete only one goes home with the prize well unless you're a soccer mom passing out participation trophies but i digress in ancient times when two men would enter the arena only one man would leave and when jesus entered the arena come on guess who was left standing not sin not death not even the devil But Jesus alone. Jesus triumphantly defeated all of those things and made us into trophies of grace. Trophies that declare his glory and the splendor and his victory throughout all the ages and the ones to come. So when people begin to fathom just how good his grace is and how awesome he truly is, they won't have to look very far. They'll only have to look at what Jesus has already done and just begun to do in us. How awesome is that? Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is probably next to John 3.16, one of the most widely quoted verses in all of the New Testament. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. We all know this one. And in this verse... We see that grace comes by way of faith, by way of you and I making a choice to believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, faith is the vehicle or the channel through which God can deliver grace. Think of it kind of like a conduit. A conduit can be a piece of tubing that electricity flows through. Or it can be even a channel through which water can flow through. And in the same way, faith is the conduit through which God's grace can and will flow into your life. And not just his favor, but every good and perfect gift that he has for us. And This is not of our own doing, come on, it's not a result of our works and our striving and our trying, lest we should boast, no, it's first and foremost always because of the actions of a merciful God, a gracious God. In the same way that you can't form electricity or water, you can only access it from the source that it derives from. And in this sense, that source is and will always be God himself. Paul wants us to know this. And to know that it's only because of what God has done for us that we are able to believe and receive by faith this grace which abounds to us. If we were not that way, we would probably take credit for it, wouldn't we? Yeah, we'd say things like well, look at us. Look what we've done. Am I right? Friends, It's all a gift, all of it, life, breath, grace, even our faith, it's a gift. And we should be grateful for it and mindful to share it with others. And finally, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's interesting to me that within the same breath as, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, which is not a result of works, that in the very next verse, it says that we are His workmanship and that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. <laughs> the same grace that comes to us that comes not as a result of doing good works, but through faith, is the same grace that also prompts us to, by faith, do good works, which the Scriptures here declare God actually prepared for us beforehand. So I want to say this. God is not against doing good good works. In fact, as a Christ follower or believer, you are actually called to do some good works. Some people have tried to remove or distance works from the life of a believer in order to relieve burden. But the works of God are never burdensome, but rather life-giving and always good. The key lies in you and I learning to discern the difference. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 said, "In the same way let your light shine before others." So that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven So that they may see your good works the works that God has created you for are meant to bring him glory guys They're meant to testify of God's grace and of God's goodness in your life That's why James would later say that faith without works is actually dead or empty because once again, God is not against doing good works. The truth is, God has already prepared for us beforehand good works for us to walk in today. I wonder what that might look like for you. I wonder if God might be stirring you to love your neighbor in ways you never have before, or to love your family and to serve your kids in ways you never have before. And my friends, love is not just a noun, but a verb, a verb that requires some action. In closing, I want to end with a reminder that we are his workmanship. Some translations here say, masterpiece. Did you know that in Christ Jesus you have become his masterpiece? I always like to end our time together each and every week by reminding you of this fact that you are indeed God's best. That when he saved you by his grace he didn't just throw together some spare parts with some old glue and duct tape. No, he made a masterpiece. And even though your story is still being written, just like mine is, like a master artisan, God is crafting the details of your life in him to look better and better each day, regardless of how you might currently feel, what your emotions say, then you can trust him when he says, you are his masterpiece. I hope you hear that today loud and clear. Maybe you've been watching or listening to this message online and you don't even know Jesus. And I wanna give you the opportunity to know him and to be filled with his spirit today. And that starts with you saying yes to him. Yes to love and to follow and to serve him all the days of your life. At Courageous Church, that's our mission, to equip and empower people to love, follow, and serve Jesus courageously. And so I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me that I believe will kickstart this faith journey for you. It goes like this, Jesus, Savior, save me save me from myself save me from the things that have me bound i believe and confess that you are the son of god and that you died on that cross for me and i believe and confess that god raised you to life again jesus i ask that you would come now in these moments and do what only you can do that you would give me new life and new freedom and new hope and fill me with your holy spirit all the days of my life and if you just prayed that we want to say welcome to the family Welcome to the party and we'd love to know about your decision today. You can do that by going to CourageousChurch.com where we have a digital connect card that you can fill out. And this will help our team best know how to serve you, how to come alongside you, how to equip you, how to pray for you. And even more so, we'd love to put a Bible in your hands as well. So please, go to CourageousChurch.com and fill that out and let us know so that we can come alongside you and help you today. We also have our next public gathering worship in the park happening this weekend or today if you're watching this on Sunday at 4 p.m. at Flat Iron Mesa Park in Sandy so please come and join us and feel free to bring a few friends bring a lawn chair we're gonna have some desserts and it's gonna be fun as always if courageous church is your home church we want to remind you to be a courageous and a generous giver your generosity allows us to reach so many people with the hope healing courage and life of God and allows us to advance and to further his mission for the people of Salt Lake City, Mountain West, and beyond. If you want to be a part of what God is doing right now with this church to make a difference, you can use one of the links that we've posted right there in the comment section, or just head on over to courageouschurch.com slash giving to give online. On behalf of Pastor Candice and our team, we want you to know, like I say every week, that we love you, God loves you, he is for you, not against you, and we are praying for you because... We want to see you live a strong and courageous life. You are God's masterpiece. You are his best. So be strong and courageous. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.